0: All right, tonight we are, in, uh, we are in the Gospel of John, verse, uh, chapter 14, verses 20 through 26. And I I would argue that today's scripture is far more important than the press it receives. Uh, it's not something we talk about a lot. It's not something we spend a ton of time on. And I think I know part of the reason why. Um, but it is, where, it is part of the section in John, uh, chapter 14, where we get a chance to eavesdrop on Jesus' own prayer. It's Jesus praying to God about... His disciples, and not just the disciples that are physically there at the moment as He's living in the world, but also those who will come later on. So also for us. And uh, considering how much time we as Christians spend trying to understand what does uh, God want for us, what does Jesus want us to do, all these kind of questions, it really would make sense for us to pay attention pretty closely to Jesus' own prayer for us, right? Uh, To kind of Jesus answering that question in many ways, where He expresses exactly what that thing is. Um, I think one of the reasons we probably don't spend tons of time on this passage is because it reads a lot like um, many of the things in the Gospel of John, which is it reads a little strangely and it's easy to get lost. The way John writes often and the way it's, especially when it gets translated to English, um, it comes across a lot like a toddler trying to tell you a story. Where you just kind of if things are kind of moving around, you're not quite sure where the beginning and end is. It's hard to untangle a little bit. A lot of those same word gets used over and over and over again, and so I, I think for that reason sometimes we don't uh, we don't pay enough attention here. Uh, let's let's read it again uh, as as you heard earlier in a much better voice than mine. Uh, uh, John chapter fourteen verses twenty through twenty six says this. This is Jesus praying. quote, I made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Again, in the typical style of John, this is a bit of a word salad, right? It's like a bowl of spaghetti where it's hard to kind of see where things begin and end. It's kind of hard to pull apart. I'm not going to examine each individual sentence and try and pull all these noodles apart and decipher one phrase from the next. But I believe that this prayer is important for us to study, and I believe this prayer gives us its own purpose statement. Thankfully, in the midst of all, this, uh, all these words winding around each other and repeating, the reason that is offered for this prayer can be found in the beginning and in the middle. Jesus says, quote, he is praying so that they may all be one. So they may all be one. Unity. Unity among the body of Christ is Jesus' chief concern here. It's Christ's prayer for us. All that he says in this section serves that purpose, that we might be one. Unity. It's great on a bumper sticker. But maybe you are like me, and like most things that fit neatly on a bumper sticker and sound good, you immediately think, yeah, good luck with that. Good luck with that. We aren't accused of unity much as people of faith. In fact, I was chatting with someone uh, earlier this week who grew up overseas. They grew up in a a country that was essentially 100% Roman Catholic, and so they only kind of knew folks that grew up in that situation. And then when they have come to the States with their family and, and, and lived here for a while, they're amazed at how many different kind of Protestants they are. And uh, they were, we were talking in a group, and they like, and, and they said, how many, how many different kinds of Christians are there? How many denominations are there? And people were like, oh, probably hundreds, I don't know. And I said, I think 16,000. And everyone laughed because they thought I was being sarcastic. And I said, no, I, I think I read it was like 16,000. And they all laughed. I said, well, and so I, I referred to... Uh, uh, Reverend Google, and, uh, and and went to Google, uh, and as it turns out, I was actually wrong. It's somewhere between thirty-four and forty-three thousand denominations. Thirty-four to forty-three thousand denominations, and those—I mean, we, you know, we—and you know, of course, what we do is we say we're non-denominational, like we somehow are exempt. But of course, that's—I mean, that's not really how it works, right? I mean, everybody splits off. Everyone does their things, and we all split for different reasons. In fact. Uh, one of my favorites is uh, I was reading in a book about uh, old Mennonite meeting houses in Lancaster County, because that's the kind of nerd I am, and, uh, and I got gifted this picture book of all these old, beautiful Lancaster County uh, church houses from a, a Mennonite friend. And so I was reading through it, and it, was talk, and it talks about the history of all the different subsections and groups that have splintered off from each other from this kind of very particular sect of people that you wouldn't think there would be that many splits. My favorite split was among the group who, um, they, they had, had enough people in their community that they begin to argue over the idea of whether or not the person who was preaching on a Sunday, and for them, that was one of a few people, they share that role. In fact, they, they cast lots to see who's going to be the next preacher. They let God decide uh, and just hope God picks someone who's not boring, I guess. But, um, and so, but the thing was, like, there's enough people in the room that it's kind of hard to see and hear the person Uh, who's standing on the floor in front of everybody so maybe we should build a little a step for them to go up on you know just just a step not not a giant pulpit not something way above everybody but just elevate them enough that maybe more people can hear them and and this caused a huge rift in the church because um, part of the whole Mennonite thing which I'm with that's why I'm down here and not up there I'm this is where I'm at theologically too like I like, they like the idea that the preacher comes from the congregation, they're not above the congregation, it's, it preach, it says something about it, so they say, no, we can't have the step, and other people are like, that's great, but I can't hear, it's just a step, we all know that it doesn't mean anything, and the no step, no step, step, no step, and finally the step people won, and they put in a step, and I'm sure it was very well made, because they're Mennonites, and so it was probably an awesome, amazing step, and then one of the non-steppers crawled in the church window in the middle of the night and stole the step and got rid of it and they never found the step again and never found out who took it. And it created such a a big deal that the community literally split and half of them left and built their own community where they could have their step. That was one of the splits, right? No wonder we have 34,000 to 43,000 denominations. We are not exactly known for our unity It's safe to say that when you get 10 people in a room, maybe particularly 10 quote-unquote Christians, you get 10 different opinions about just about anything. There's no wonder that we tend to split into homogenous bubbles or particular tribes, right? Who wants to try and navigate all that difference, all that division, all these different ways of thinking and being? Who wants to sit with the steppers when you're a non-stepper? There are people... In this world, maybe there are people in this room right now, even in this small little community, that make no sense to you. They frustrate you. Maybe they infuriate you. It's probably me, and you're probably right, right? And so how do we talk with a straight face about unity when we are not even remotely uniform? Additionally, apart from it feeling unrealistic, we also have to be honest about something in our religious history. We have to be honest about the fact that calls for unity have often been weaponized. A lot of things have been done in the name of unity. This week there was a frankly astounding report that was released about our nation's largest denomination. It was an independent investigation called for by some of the folks within the denomination, which, I'm, which I feel good about. That's great. But this independent investigation clearly shows that for a long time now, there has been systematic covering up of abuse. That clearly, those who were in charge of this institution, those who were kind of on the executive level, chose institutional protection over the care of existing victims and over the protection of potential future victims. Abusers were protected and allowed to move about freely. Often, they wouldn't even acknowledge those that were hurt, or they would intentionally silence them in one way or another, or try to discredit them in one way or another. All this truly horrific stuff. In, in the report, one of, the, uh, one of those who were abused called it soul murder. All this horrific stuff done in Jesus' name. Now, thankfully, some from within the denomination demanded an investigation because they knew something wasn't right. And they voted to open up everything to outside investigators, including, uh, like, attorney-client privilege. They opened it all up, and that's why all this came out. That's good news that they decided to do that. And within this mess, uh, you find some of the internal justifications that people were using for the evil that was being done, and there's nothing else to call it but evil. And a lot of it was done in the name of some twisted version of unity. There's some correspondence uh, between these executive-level folks that shows uh, and, and where one person calls, these uh, these victims calls for help and, and for accountability, called to me, scheme of Satan to distract us from our true mission to evangelize. In other words, no, no, no. we got to be unified. Stick together. we got to protect this quote-unquote mission, even at the expense of allowing horrific abuse. Of, of course, obviously, no mission is worth considering, let alone unifying around that abuses people. But this quote-unquote need to unify around the institution and its perceived mission was central to the awful and widespread evil that we learned about this week. It was unity in Christ's name and it was very much anti-Christ. And that happens a lot. Gratefully, this unity was not achieved. Again, as people from within the denomination wanted to do something about it and went ahead and opened things up no matter how painful and hurtful it might be to the organization. And I'm glad they did. I hope it leads to better things. But there is a version of unity That can result in abuse, and neglect, and war, and prejudice of every kind, and you fill in the blank. So not only does it feel a little bit unrealistic when we talk about everyone being one, but also sometimes it's been used as a weapon. Now obviously, I believe, obviously, this is not what Jesus had in mind. This is not what he's talking about. So what kind of unity is Jesus praying for? It seems to me that within this prayer itself, we find an indication of the kind of unity Christ wants for us. And the unity that Christ wants for us is drawn from the unity within God's self. If you can pull a formula, again, from this bowl of spaghetti, it might look something like this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is all in one. There is a unity that is there. The disciples only know that unity, only know that God because they've experienced God's love through Jesus, through the incarnate God and through his love for them. Father and Son experience a unity and understanding that Son and disciples then experience together. And then Christ prays that we all have the same kind of unity among ourselves that God has within God's self so that the world might know Christ's love. This kind of repetitive mutuality happens so that, quote, the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Within God's self, there's only mutuality of love. God is love. The Trinity is held together by the unity of this love. And we are invited into the same mutuality, the same kind of unity here and now with God and with each other. Of course this doesn't mean uniformity. We are not all the same. To use biblical language, we are a body and a body has different parts, parts that look unique, parts that have varying strengths and weaknesses, but parts that are dependent upon each other. We are a body that is independent interdependent and more importantly, we are a body we are a body because we share a DNA, right? That's the miraculous thing of this DNA that, you know, we've discovered in our recent history is that no matter which part of the body you go to, if it's the hair falling off someone's head or the extra skin cells that are, cells that are shed or the heart itself, it all shares this same building block, the same DNA. And that DNA is love. That DNA of love unifies us all. We are a body with many different parts, but we share the same DNA. It's part of the body. It's what the body is made from. And we know it's part of the body or we know it's a foreign body based on the presence of that DNA, based on whether or not it comes from that love. It's not Hallmark love, it's not Valentine's card love, but it's the love that puts itself on a cross. It's cruciform love. And just as his disciples came to know God through the incarnate love of the Son that would put himself on the cross, so this world will know God through the unified, cruciform love of Christ's body. And conversely, they will not know God to the extent that that love is absent. I'll be honest, I'm not one of those uh, Christians or one of those pastors who is deeply worried about all those atheists out there trying to steal the sheep. Trying to talk faithful people out of being faithful anymore out there. I don't feel like I need to go and defend the faith from those who don't believe. I just don't really feel that way. I'm not worried about atheists stealing Christians from the flock. I think our lack of love does a fine job on its own. I think what just came out in the news this last week from our largest denomination will do more harm to the body of Christ than any well put out argument that any atheist could come up with. This is everything. We don't get to have anything without it. It is the DNA of the body. It is the DNA of the kingdom we are building. We are to be unified by cross shaped love for one another. And really, what other choice do we have? What else could possibly really be our unity? I mean, I know some segments of the body try to find other points of unity and try and enforce certain ways of doing or being or thinking. I just found that those don't really work. You can't really unify around those things, right? We'll never all agree on theology or sociology or politics or anything of the sort. We will never all just look alike or act alike or have affinity for the same things. We will never fully uh, like everything even about each other or for that matter ourselves, right? We are not uniform at all. And that is a good thing. I really believe that's a good thing. But we must share this DNA. We must be committed to tethering ourselves together, together to Christ's cross-shaped love. We must be able to agree to the principle that even in our differences, even in our disagreements, we are always addressing these things in the shadow of the cross and the love that it shows. We must agree to engage our enemies under the wings of Christ's sacrificial love. We can agree to lay down our pride, our need to be right, uh, our, uh, our rights that we feel we are owed, our own competitiveness, and commit to this one unifying idea. We all swim in this same baptismal water. What else could possibly be our unity? We will always look, sing, interpret, and think differently. We will never agree all the time or even like each other all the time or agree with all the choices that everyone else is making in the room. It's just not going to happen. We will come up with different, totally correct answers to every dilemma known to man. We will never be and should never strive to be uniform. But we can Be united under Christ's brand of love. We can do that. The kind of love that bleeds before it draws blood, the kind of love that orders everything under a cross that Christ freely chose. We can work together in love, disagree in love, confront in love. We can treat friends and family and strangers and enemies with the same love. We can vote in love. We can structure ourselves in love. We can worship in love. That can be our unity. That should be our unity. Everything coming from that same DNA. And when it comes from that same DNA, then it is all one unified body, just as Christ prayed. The kind of body that shows the world who God really is. And if this prayer is any indication, the kind of body that Jesus is just praying to God will happen. One God, one Savior, one Spirit, one body gathered at one table all under one banner, love. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for A unity that stands above and beyond uh, all of our differences, petty and otherwise. God, there are times that we uh, disagree with each other and with those in this world for very small and insignificant reasons, and there are times we disagree with each other for very profoundly important reasons. God, there are a million good justifications to not be one. But God, may we we be reminded every time we come into this room, every time we go out into this world in your name, may we be reminded that it is your desire, it is your prayer that we share this same DNA. That we love as we were first loved, even when we least deserved it. God, help us to be one. Not the same, but always one. So those of us in this room, those in our lives, those in our community, those in this world might know who you really are. God, we are grateful for your unconditional love. We are grateful there's nothing we could do to make you love us any more or any less than you already do. May we embody that same cruciform love in this world. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.